Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. here, Vikram speaking. We're really happy to have Sid Shaker, co-founder of Token Analyst, join us as well. Sid is doing a lot of interesting work on the on-chain side of cryptocurrencies, which I think are a very important and often overlooked uh, part of the crypto market. So really appreciate you joining us today, Sid. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So we'd love to start off with your background a bit, you know, who you are and how you got interested in crypto. Yeah, sure. So I personally, I I grew up kind of in all over the world. You know, my family kept moving to different countries and then ended up going to school, my undergrad at uh, Cornell University in uh, upstate New York, where I, you know, did a combination of CS and other stuff. And that's kind of where I was first introduced to crypto uh, in the early days where in the computer labs at Cornell, there were there was a, a group of students who were essentially mining Bitcoin. And uh, that was in the you know, 2011, 2012. And so it was kind of early days still for Bitcoin. And uh, that was when I was first exposed to crypto. And, and, you know, the interest kind of stuck with me all throughout. And then you know, after Cornell, I worked for a few years and then moved to London to do my master's and then do some research at uh, UCL, uh, University College London over here, and then uh, uh, joined an accelerator program called Entrepreneur First in London. And uh, essentially, that's kind of where I got the spark and, and, and started uh, Token Analyst, you know, a little over a year ago. Got it. And just on the, we'll, we'll come to Token Analyst for sure, but I'm just curious on kind of the early days, in you know, 2011, 2012, that was still pretty early. That was only a couple years into Bitcoin. Thinking back on that era and being in school at the time, what were the types of things people were talking about? You know, why were they interested in it and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was the unifying factor for us. Uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't even necessarily the crypto side of things. It was, it was data and uh, doing interesting things by digging into data. And so, at the time we were starting, a lot of the folks around us, you know, in the accelerator and in the, in the scene in general, in the crypto scene in London in general, were looking around the trading side of things. So you know, crypto trading bots, arbitrage bots, a lot of different things uh, of that nature. And so for us, the question naturally arose, if is this all there is to it? You know, is it just momentum swings? <laughs> you know, is it just a whimsical movements of price whenever, you know, a news article came out or a hot piece of news came out or, you know, just based on technical indicators, you know, Ichimoku clouds, you know, hitting resistance bands and so on and so forth. So our whole thing was if there is any fundamentals to this industry, it's got to reside in the data that's on the blockchain itself, because that's what these assets are at at their core. They're essentially just figments on the blockchain. So that's kind of where we just dove in. So, I mean, the experience is more technologically driven. So a lot of the people and folks who were interested in it were kind of CS folks, computer science folks who were more looking at it from a technical novelty rather than, you know, the future possibilities of money, global money and sound money and so on and so forth. 
Gotcha. All right. Yeah. You were just talking about um, how important, like you were talking about Ichimoku clouds and how important, you know, fundamental on-chain data is uh, for the space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was, a, that was the hypothesis, right? That uh, no one was really looking at on-chain data. And if there were any fundamentals to any of these assets, our hypothesis was it's got to be in what's going on on the blockchain itself. And so that's, that's kind of how we got started. Got it. Yeah, that's a really interesting hypothesis. And I think that as the uh, industry matures, people are going to care more and more about on-chain data because you're right, like a lot of trader types out there care mostly on the technical side. Um, There's a lot more interesting stuff to look at. So how do you describe, you know, what's your kind of elevator pitch? How do you describe token analysts to say like kind of non-technical people? The non-technical people, I think the easy description is we are trying to bring more transparency into the crypto space by looking at data that lives on the blockchain. Uh, I think that's as, as simple as you can put it. And so there's many ways to go about that, obviously. Yep. And uh, before we get into all the on-chain data stuff, you know, I think it's worth stepping back for a second, kind of setting the stage for everyone. So I'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. But first off, I really enjoyed the article you wrote called uh, Dissecting Blocks. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I encourage everyone to, uh, everyone listening to take a look at that. Uh, It covers a lot of the reasons that, you know, we kind of care about on-chain data. So I wanted to maybe read from it to kind of get your thoughts if anything's changed and kind of maybe expand on it a bit. So From your article, you say, first off, what do we mean by on-chain data? To put it succinctly, all data that is natively stored on the blockchain. This data includes, but is not limited to, details of every block, details of every transaction, and smart contract invocation and usage. So I guess my first question is, you know, what's kind of your delineation of on-chain data versus off-chain data? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much exact. You, you kind of nailed it when you read that. It's essentially everything that's stored on the ledger itself, on the shared ledger, when we're talking about open blockchains. So everything that's inside a block. So that includes uh, the transactions, you know, the inputs and outputs for Bitcoin. Uh, and then for Ethereum, it's every single smart contract, function call, event, log, you know, receipt, so on and so forth. Basically, every single data point that's stored on the blockchain itself. And that each of the nodes are validating and to achieve consensus. Yep. And what are so that data? You know, I think we we're, we've been in the space. We kind of get why it's important for kind of fund managers who are kind of getting to this for the first time. How would you kind of tell them or let them know why it's important? What are some kind of things that you can uncover with the on-chain data? I think the parallel to draw would be it's a completely new style of data that that previously wasn't visible in traditional markets. So while market data does exist, so by market data, we can mean, you know, prices, exchange volumes, uh, volumes that's uh, reported by crypto exchanges, tick, tick level, you know, price data, for example, all that data, it does exist and it's parallel to traditional markets. But the on-chain data is more like, Uh, I would say the parallel would be like visibility into dark pools. You know, who's really moving money behind the scenes, the stuff that's not reported. And behind the scenes in this in this case of crypto is an open ledger. And so it's it's not so much behind the scenes. It's more just interpreting what's going on in this open ledger to give a whole new dimension into market dynamics. Who are the forces that are moving funds around and, and by extension impacting the price? And so that's, I think, the best explanation of on-chain and, and why it's important kind of to look at. Yeah, it's interesting because all the 
data is out there. Mm -hmm. So if you know what you're looking for, it's out there. But it's opaque in the sense of it's also not easy to kind of wrangle and manage. And I think that's what a lot of the stuff that you guys are doing, you're kind of uh, putting all the tools together to be able to analyze the on-chain side of a network. There's another piece that I, I liked from your Dissecting Blocks article where you say, instead of just crudely measuring the overall usage of a crypto asset network, we think we can use on-chain transaction data to figure out who are the entities that are actually using a given crypto asset. Mm -hmm. That one I thought was super interesting. And then you get into kind of exchange-related addresses, bot and burner addresses, and human-operated or other addresses. So I thought maybe it's worth talking about that a little bit and how, how people should think about that. Yeah, so the blockchain is essentially just a series of transactions between individuals, uh, right? And so from our perspective, the value to be gained from, from the on-chain side of things was not only uh, looking at it from an aggregate perspective in terms of overall transaction volumes. So X amount of Bitcoin was moved today between you know, completely unknown parties, which is what at first glance you would think you would gain from it because each of the accounts or addresses on the blockchain are essentially anonymized. They're just a random bunch of numbers and letters, hashes. And so at first glance, any normal person looking at it would just think that, all right, we can just get some aggregate metrics around the overall state of the network. But uh, when we really dug into it, we began to see certain patterns emerge around how some of these accounts slash addresses, you know, in, in blockchain terminology, it's, it's called an address or essentially a user account on the blockchain behaves. And so certain addresses behaved in certain ways uh, when we were just tracking the data historically. So one clear example of this is, you know, bot related address activity. So for a particular set of addresses, for example, uh, one batch of addresses, 16,000 addresses, they transacted every single Friday exactly at the same time historically for the past <laughs> two and a half years, you know, and, and that's, wow. Yeah. It, you know, you can think a human being can do that, but most probably it's an indication of programmatic activity of some sort. And uh, this is on Ethereum. And these addresses weren't smart contracts. They were normal externally owned accounts. And that's the lingo where, where it's, it's a non-smart contract account. And so the clear indication for that is it's a programmatically controlled address that's probably being run by some code in the background. And so you should take it as that. You should identify it as that and see all the activity that it does and tie it back to the network of the program that's running it and, and try to interpret that program rather than take the address's behavior at face value and account it along with the rest of the transaction volume. Yep. That's really interesting. What was kind of the process of discovery to end up finding that that was going on with that particular address? Initially, we were just, so how did we even get started? We really just dove in and started running nodes and getting the data. And when we were seeing some of this data come on live, we were essentially kind of like a block explorer. We were seeing these transactions come on our screen, on our terminals. And certain transactions, block after block, we just saw the same hashes pop up with the same amount transacted. It was like 0 0.5 Ether. And so we were like, this looks kind of weird. Uh, let's look into it a little <laughs> bit more, <laughs> you know, and yeah. then looked at where these particular hashers, these addresses got their funds from, and they were getting it from this big bot address, which again, would belong to a cluster of bot addresses, which transacted, all of whom transacted every Friday at, you know, 12 p.m. UTC. So that was kind of the process. Yep. 
I guess that plays right into the next topic I wanted to bring up. The, another article that, that you wrote that I really liked, um, it's got a great title, by the way. It's called Under the Hood of the World Computer. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And the opening picture to that article is pretty cool. It's uh, it's a very colorful diagram. Like We'll link to it in the show notes for sure, but it's a super colorful diagram, uh, which is a visualization of, of the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. And there's a section in there called the journey of the Ethereum transaction. And I think for anyone interested in how a transaction propagates, particularly with respect to smart contract transactions, that was a very illuminating and clear description of it. So I encourage everyone to to check that out. It might be fun to think about the on-chain analysis through the eyes of kind of a fund hiring an analyst to investigate on-chain data. So, you know, I, I bet part of your kind of business hypothesis is as this industry gets bigger and more funds care about this industry, they're going to care more and more about the fundamentals, right? Um, yeah. We were talking about that hypothesis earlier. Mm-hmm. So what are kind of some fundamental topics around on-chain data that an analyst should know about? So around on-chain data is a whole, whole world, you know, uh, in terms of diving into this stuff. But at, at a high level, differentiating between well, you know, core concepts, so wallets, addresses, high-level differentiation of addresses, so at least in Ethereum and Ethereum-like chains, uh, there's a differentiation of smart contract addresses and then normal or externally owned addresses. And then at a high level, also understanding uh, transactions. When looking at it from a data perspective, you know, Bitcoin transactions are different than Ethereum transactions. You know, different inputs and outputs are bunched together as a UTXO type chain, different than an account-based ledger like uh, Ethereum. Yep. And so that's on a high level. And then even internally, even within Ethereum, a normal transaction is different than a token transfer. You have hundreds of tokens that are built on top of Ethereum. They are actually mm-hmm. recorded in a different way than a normal Ethereum transaction is. And so kind of yep. layers to differentiating between the higher level concepts of what a transaction means. Got it. Yeah, that's just, just at the highest level. I mean, there's a whole world underneath which we can dive into if you want. Yeah. Along those lines, I guess, uh, where do you see on-chain data going? In particular, you know, say, again, you're a fund, you want to kind of investigate on-chain data and see how that plays into the price of a crypto asset. So, I mean, we're just talking about Ethereum, so I guess we can stick to Ethereum. Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of things, you know, a few years from now when funds do care about the stuff a lot more than they do right now, mm-hmm. uh, what are the kinds of things that you think that they should be paying attention to? So, I mean, starting at a high level, it's, it's you know, the active uh, addresses, active wallets that are actually transacting in yep. The crypto asset in question, whether that be a token or whether that be ETH or Ethereum itself. So it's essentially a proxy for how much money is at, at play at any given time. Uh, so certain thing we've seen is a large amount of the total supply of a token is essentially held up in addresses never to be seen again. Either it's lost or it's in cold storage addresses of exchanges or it's in early holders who are essentially quote unquote hodlers who never ever transact, who haven't transacted since yep. 2015, which is uh, when Ethereum started, or you know, right. 2010, 20, uh, 2009 when Bitcoin started. So discounting that and then seeing really what's actively at play is kind of an important first step, I think, from a fund's perspective. Uh, so you can size the market effectively. And then going a little more in depth is, uh, you know, the, some of the stuff that we're trying to do now, which is identifying different types of market participants 
from an on-chain data perspective, you can see those from address behavioral patterns and then see how they're behaving. So one huge uh, you know, terminology in the crypto space is the uh, concept of a whale, right? Someone who has a lot of funds, yep. who's, who's accumulated funds either through early participation in a token sale or just over time, they've just bought a lot of tokens. And so you know, the wealth is quite concentrated amongst a few addresses in general for the majority of crypto assets. And so when some of these whales, quote unquote, move funds into exchanges, it's usually an impetus for some sort of price volatility. And when you can differentiate between the whales that have participated in maybe OTC desk transactions, so quote unquote, institutional whales or retail whales, uh, who are essentially just individuals who have been holding these funds. And again, programmatically activated whales, which are you know bot armies that have been accumulating funds slowly over the past few months, years, so on and so forth. And then see when they deposit funds into exchanges, because at the end of the day, price only moves when the market is aware of uh, sell orders uh, or buy orders, right? And that's exhibited in the exchange uh, arena. And so if you take the point of entry upon when funds do enter the exchange and see who's exactly depositing those funds, and then again, on the other side, who's uh, taking out those funds, if you analyze that data, I think that's some of the stuff that we're getting to now. It's a huge, huge indicator towards uh, which way the price is going to move. That's really interesting. So this is uh, kind of the type of stuff that you've been working on most lately? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. And was this kind of like a hypothesis? Had someone asked you to take a look or how did you guys come up with it? It's always interesting to hear like it's such a new industry. So it's always interesting to hear how people kind of come up with their hypotheses. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. So it's kind of a mix of, uh, you know, requests and our own kind of digging. So a couple of funds asked us to investigate a few OTC or over the counter uh, uh, trading desk wallets. And which they were transacting with, and they just wanted to get some more insight into who else those wallets were transacting with, what's the type of money that was flowing through those wallets. When we were going down that route, we saw a bunch of clusters of wallets. Uh, this is in Bitcoin that essentially were part of an exchange network. And so that kind of led us down this whole hypothesis of correlating the big whale movement with what happens on exchanges because that, that was our whole this the recent price spike in fact we did a pretty in-depth investigation into it you know april 2nd and you know bitcoin shot up like 15 percent in a day it was actually driven by a few key whales who had inputted uh, who had put in money into concertedly across multiple exchanges to then uh, initiate orders on the exchange to then drive up the price so that oh, wow. as, as many participants across the market had awareness that uh, these orders were being made. Therefore, it started a virtual cycle. So we clearly saw via the on-chain data the inflows into the exchanges, and then correspondingly the follow-up inflow via from retail traders. Hundreds of thousands of addresses, different addresses from completely different clusters, from whose source of funds was completely different, inputting money into exchanges to follow on as soon as the price started spiking. So. Most probably a lot of this was programmatically driven, you know, you know, momentum bots that are tracking for swings. And then on the other side, is it's different areas of the world waking up. We saw, I mean, the, the price initially spiked at around 4 a.m. UTC, I believe. And so, uh, you know, Europe and, and the States, Eastern, at least the East Coast is kind of asleep at that time. And so the humans, quote unquote, waking up and then transacting with specific exchanges, the Coinbase's of the world, the Krakens of the world, as opposed to 
on the Asian side, you know, the KuCoins, the OKXs of the world. So that sort of differentiation we were able to clearly see from just looking at the data. Yeah, that's really impressive because I think that's a, a very valuable kind of source of of data, especially around different kinds of price levels. So maybe not something necessarily like 4,400 to 4,450, but kind of like the 4,500 level, the 5,000 level, because those levels seem to be really important to a lot of yeah. traders. And I imagine on the programmatic and bot side, it's probably extra important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I, I, like. Also, in terms of the levels, also the awareness of levels from if you're going super granular across multiple exchanges, it's a pretty efficient market. But those small arbitrage opportunities when, for example, it's reached 5,000, but it's still 4,900 X at another exchange, we see the flow of funds from exchange to exchange, actually. So traders who are transferring their funds from Binance to Kraken to then take advantage of that arbitrage opportunity. So we see that both from exchange wallets to other exchange wallets at the same time, as well as exchange to the trader's wallet, then back to the other exchange. We've been able to track those funds. So that was pretty interesting to see. Yeah, that's really interesting to see. Did you write this up as a blog article or anything? Or uh, uh, um, we're, we're just in the or? process of. We're just in the process okay. of. So, okay. So, yeah. okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me know and then uh, I'll, I'll definitely uh, read it and share it. So, you know, we'd love to also kind of switch a bit to the the business side of things. Sure. And it would be great to talk about, you know, what's it like building a SaaS company now in the crypto space? And you know, there's a few topics I guess we could go over the first kind of like UI UX, go to market, competitive landscape and stuff like that. You know, crypto is still pretty early, especially the kind of stuff that you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about market size how to reach out to customers and how to get customers to see why the service that you're providing is important and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a unique market, right? It's, it's the majority, the, the tide turns with uh, the price of Bitcoin, if you really boil it down uh, to its essence. And so, you know, when we were initially starting out, we were serving kind of crypto hedge funds and crypto funds in general who were putting money into crypto assets at scale. And uh, I'd say probably the majority, 90% of those crypto hedge funds have essentially shut down shop. And uh, mind you, they were most of them were just comprised of two or three individuals in like a garage in Austin, for example. And, yeah. and they called themselves <laughs> a crypto fund. But it was they were just deploying a couple of million, you know, called themselves a crypto fund. They were looking for some sort of alpha. What's the next hot ICO? What's the next hot coin to get? you know, uh, 2x, 3x more returns than another coin. And so I think 90, 90, 95% of those are are out of the window now. And, you know, obviously more maturity is settled in, less ICOs, less of these kind of flashy promises and stuff. But in terms of the market sizing, I think at least from a financial perspective, there's there's still a huge groundswell of uh, retail traders who are interested in are actively trading from their homes. You know, I, I personally know several folks who, are on BitMEX all day in their house, you know, uh, making leverage positions, just individuals who who make a living off of this stuff, who've made enough money off of BitMEX to then just be hooked on it and just be addicted to it and constantly on it. And uh, obviously they hedge their positions enough that they can survive for yep. years on end. There are some of the folks have bought houses and these aren't crypto millionaires I'm talking about. These are active traders. So there's that other whole branch of crypto millionaires, obviously a much smaller subset who've just gotten lucky and gotten rich off of crypto. But this is an active trading audience, I think, that's just pretty interesting and kind of overlooked from a market sizing perspective. 
And then, you know, the other side is, again, retail uh, interest catching up in general. So the whole DAP side of things, again, it's, uh, it's not as huge as was initially expected. Obviously, people using DAPs for their own sake, for their utility is quite slim. Uh, most of the users we've seen are, are just people who are interested in it or the developers or people who have a stake in it actually use the DAP. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're on it too. The, the whole community of crypto Twitter, right? It's a yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty small microcosm of the, the broader world of u- users of anything, users of crypto in general, right? Uh, it's a broad yep. term, but anyone who interacts with crypto on a daily basis, it's such a small microcosm. Yep. And, uh, your site, of course, tokenanalyst.io. Again, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. So a couple, I, I was just curious about the kind of UI and UX and how you decided to serve particular, because I, you know, I have it open right now and you know there's new transactions coming in. You got a live feed of Ethereum. You can take a look at ERC20 tokens. So I recommend everyone to actually go to the site and try it. There's a lot of great content on here. So we'd love to talk a little bit on the UI and UX side and how you decided to put particular kind of statistics on your main page how did you how did you think about that uh yeah thanks for the thanks for the compliment i think the main focus for us was how can we provide value off the bat to a core audience that was big enough and and were concerned enough with their main problem that that they would be excited about you know using the site that they would be about coming back and using the stuff that we have on display and so that audience, I would say, more or less is this kind of retail trader audience who uh, essentially are, you know, they have two, three screens open all day with, uh, you know, BitMEX on one trading view on another, you know, crypto newsfeed probably or Twitter on another, Twitter and Telegram on another. And so we wanted something kind of really fun and engaging where it's almost cartoonish to a point where data in and of itself is is not as as fun to look at. Right. In general, uh, just transactions yep. on chain. First of all, it's it's hard to parse. Uh, how do you even make sense of random hashes floating across? Secondly, it's it's even the aggregate the aggregate metrics on on chain data is uh, another level of abstraction. You need to understand the concepts of on chain data first about what's going on in the blockchain first before even interpreting. Oh, transaction volume actually means this for this asset. You know, uh, and so that's kind of the challenge we're trying to grapple with. You know, a mix of education, also making it fun enough such that you come just for the pure enjoyment of using the site, even if you don't necessarily understand everything. And then uh, shareability. Uh, we want to encourage people to like it so much that you you share uh, some of the content that's on there. Yeah. I like how at the kind of bottom of the page, you have a few upcoming features. Uh, so there's yeah. three of them. I'll just read them real quick. Uh, know when volume flows between fiat on-ramps and altcoin exchanges. Get notified when exchange inflow precedes exchange volume. Uh, make money by staking your cryptocurrency and participate in the on-chain economy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about those features and you know what you're excited about there? Yeah, so throughout the site, we've added kind of calls to action uh, or just buttons where We've had people request it to us before, but we're not completely sure of should we go down this path as a team and then build this, you know, have a two or three week sprint where we build this feature out. And so we wanted to kind of test some of these things out where each call to action on our site is something that someone has already asked us previously, but we wanted to test it out and see if the data corresponds to this. And so taking that example of make money while you hold crypto, just yesterday we had, you know, 
<laughs> a significant portion of our of our users hover over that and also click on it. And so it's a uh, it's a you know it's an interesting sign for us where as a team we can reflect on that and say, hey, the interest is towards this particular feature. Let's let's focus more of our attention on that. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty smart way to do it because you don't even have to actually talk directly with customers. They're kind of telling you what they want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's. I think it's a more honest way, right? I mean, you, when you talk yep. to them, you, you start. You may not get the real answer, whereas their behavior on the site, the fact that they actually scroll all the way down, first of all, or that means they're interested in seeing the entire contents of the site, and the fact that they hover over that particular button, which is big enough to be hovered over. For an extended right. period of time, and click on it. I think it's like three different stages of interest, and then finally, if they put their email in, that's that fourth stage of interest where it's, hey, this is for real. You know, this person really wants this stuff. Yep, great. Yeah, that's super. That's super helpful. So, when you're building token analyst, what is something that you are kind of really proud about recently? Like a win that's kept you going, something that's you know given you a lot of uh, kind of positive feedback and that sort of thing. I think the biggest win is uh, this kind of identification of exchange wallets project that we did internally to kind of shed some light on it. I mean, once we kind of discovered this OTC whale connections towards exchange volumes and price volatility, we did a really in-depth dive into identifying the different types of exchange wallets. And how we did that was to actually transact with the exchanges. We as a team deposited money into every single exchange that's on our site and recorded meticulously, recorded multiple times, depositing at different times of the day, and seeing, tracing the flow of money, how did our money, which wallets did our money flow to? And then also we drew that money and also made trades on those exchanges to then track what happened to the funds uh, when we did those actions. So it was a really meticulous process. It took about a week to do it comprehensively as a team. And at the end of that, you know, the result was essentially millions of addresses uh, labeled uh, using, you know, I would say pretty accurate heuristics for what exactly type of address within that exchange uh, it is. So we have exchange yep. client addresses, client receiving addresses, which is the address that you would deposit money to if you were to send money to, uh, you know, Coinbase or Kraken. And then we have the routing addresses, which route funds towards multiple hot addresses, cold addresses, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, some exchanges have more than another to kind of obfuscate the, the flow of funds. And then we have cold storage and hot addresses as well, which, you know, for the users, which is cold storage, where majority of funds are held away from, you know, any exposure to the internet and hot addresses where the private keys are online and where funds and, you know, millions of transactions happen where funds are essentially being routed for liquidity purposes. So we've identified this huge network of granular exchanges. It was a huge win for us where it was like, if we can actually just do this by transacting and actually see the the live data update in front of our, our eyes. And so it was a huge win. It opened a lot of doors in terms of serving different types of customers. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it probably doesn't even require a lot of upfront capital to do that because yeah. you know, addresses themselves don't necessarily have anything to do with the with the amount in them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You could do that with you know, a minimal amount of capital. Some exchanges do have, you know, trading limits, you know, Bitfinex being one where you can test exactly each of the features without depositing a certain amount of money to then trade and then seeing how your money moves when you trade or when you make an order for a certain type of address, do their, do their hard addresses then provide liquidity to it? And where are they pulling that liquidity from? How are they, how do the internal routing systems work? 
Is one exchange's liquidity management system better than another exchange's? You know, doing that kind of yep. deeper analysis is not possible without a little more capital. But yeah, as a basic basic level, you can do that with ten bucks. Yeah, that's really cool. I haven't heard anyone do something like that, so that's very cool to hear. Thanks. And I guess on the business side, what's something you kind of wish that you had learned earlier, like maybe to decide to stop working on a feature or going out to customers earlier? I'm kind of just making those up, but uh, what are some, you know, a really interesting recent learning you've had? I think the biggest, biggest learning is, you know, we wish we had put out stuff for the public just for out in the open earlier. You know, we have this huge, huge data infrastructure that we've built yeah. for the past like <laughs> six, seven, eight months. You know, real-time data pipeline from like multiple nodes all over the world, streaming into multiple databases. You know, graph databases and SQL ones, Cassandra, so on and so forth. All this huge, amazing backend stuff. Nothing is visible outside. Yes, we've been serving you know B two B clients, you know, private funds and so on and so forth, but. There's plenty of stuff that we could have exposed earlier on that might have gotten us perhaps as a business more inbound, you know, where more people would have been aware of what's possible and reached out to us potentially if we had put out more stuff. And so, yeah, that's kind of the biggest, uh, I guess, regret in terms of not moving, uh, putting out stuff earlier. But, you know, we live and we yep. learn and we're doing so aggressively now. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the most important thing. Right. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.